Father in heaven, again, that really is the prayer of our heart. We want to see Jesus and we want to see truth. We under, want to understand what it is that you're trying to communicate for us for these days. So Lord, we invite your Holy Spirit once again and ask that you will give me words to speak and you'll give us ears to hear what you are seeking to share with us today. May all be done to your honor and glory and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Revelation chapter three. I said three, we'll come to three later, I mean 14. Chapter 14, Revelation 14. And I want to read the third angel's message to you, and I'd like you to think about it in the context of what we have been talking about in the last few days here, last couple of days. It begins in verse 9, and it says, And then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now there's a tendency for us to look at the third angel's message as being concluded with verse 11. If you look at verse 12, it says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. If you try to fit all that we've been talking about into the first three verses, you'd say, what does that have to do with the mark of the beast? All that we've been talking about here, how is that the mark of the beast? That's why verse 12 is so much a part of that message. I know that you notice there that in my Bible, New King James, the quotation marks from the angel seem to end at the end of verse 11. Well, I don't think those quotation marks are inspired in the first place. Secondly, recognizing this part of the message is critical to our understanding of what we are discussing today and have been discussing. So let's go and move ahead a little bit. In the book, uh, The Return of the Latter Rain, there is a story in there, and we're actually going to move from the book, The Return of the Latter Rain, to the book, Wounded in the House of His Friends today. And obviously, I'm taking in an hour and a half and I'm condensing the key points of two books, or one book, and today I'm actually putting two pieces in. But I want to share this with you today because it is inspiring, and it reinforces for us the whole concept of Ellen White as an inspired prophet, and it fits into the context of this whole scenario that we're dealing with in a significant way. So I wanted to do that. We didn't have enough time to do it yesterday, but I want to move into it today. 
and uh, you'll find it uh, near the end of the, uh, of the book, Return of the Latter Rain. But let me share with you some of this story. It's a fascinating one. Ellen White was in Salamanca, New York. And in Life Sketches, it is written this way, that Ellen White, climbing the stairs, she knelt by the bed, and before the first word of petition had been offered, she felt that the room was filled with fragrance of roses. Looking up to see whence the fragrance came, she saw the room flooded with a soft silvery light. Instantly, her pain and weariness disappeared. The perplexity and discouragement of mind vanished, and hope and comfort and peace filled her, fulfilled her heart. Then losing all consciousness regarding her surroundings, she was shown in vision many things relating to the progress, the cause in different parts of the world, and the conditions which were helping or hindering the work. Among the many, many visions presented to her were several showing the conditions existing in where? Battle Creek. Battle Creek. In a very full and striking manner, these were laid out before her. So that is the context of the vision. But it's what happens next in relationship to that vision and that whole experience that becomes fascinating. That vision of November 3, 1890 in Salamanca, she had that vision and the next day she tried to tell A.T. Jones and her son, W.C. White, what, this, what she had seen the night before, but she could not recall it. She could not remember it. She wrote a few words in her diary that evening, <clears throat> a few words about what she had seen, though she was unable to remember the things to tell others. But in her diary, when she sat down to write in the evening, she was able to put some of those pieces together. Nine days later, before the NRLA's annual report to the review, Ellen White wrote a few more details in her diary. Of course, you all know what the NRLA is, right? So let me explain what's happening in this situation. What's happening is that there, there is a magazine the Seventh-day Adventist Church was putting out, and A.T. Jones was the editor and principal contributor to that magazine, but they were part of the National Religious Liberty Association, which included members of other denominations in that. Even today, there are other denominations that are involved in religious liberty issues. And we as a Seventh-day Adventist church, we work together, we participate with other denominations because we're not the only ones concerned about religious liberty. But at this particular time, the magazine that was being produced by um, our religious liberty organization was the American Sentinel. And that was our denomination's publication. Well, there, wasn't, there was something going on that will come up in relationship to that. But at the same time as some other meetings were going on in Battle Creek, they were having a meeting of this NRLA, which included some non-Adventists being present there at that meeting, conducting some of those things. 
and their annual report came out in the review. And when it came out, um, just about the time before it came out, she was having this vision and having this experience. So that's the context. Ellen White returned to Battle Creek shortly after this, the nine days had gone by, and she became involved in the final weeks of the Ministerial Institute that was going on there, this being 1890. On November 21, she wrote more details in her diary of issues related to the American Sentinel. Then the NRLA was working on plans to follow uh, to follow not what I wanted to say, but anyway, to place pressure um, from the people of the world who did not appreciate the message of the American Sentinel being an Adventist organization. In other words, they weren't particularly, being Sunday keepers, weren't particularly excited about the Sabbath being an emphasis in this Religious Liberty magazine. And so they were anxious to see some of those things either toned down or entirely removed. And so there was pressure coming from this organization for those changers to a magazine produced by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. At the 29th session of the General Conference, which convened in Battle Creek on March 5, 1891, are you staying with me? This was back in November that she had this vision, right? back in Salamanca, New York. But now we are jumping ahead to March of 1891. And the General Conference session convened on March 5, and on March 7, Sabbath, Ellen White preached there. There was a powerful appeal that she made to the Seventh-day Adventists to hold to the distinctive Adventist truths. To she told the audience <clears throat> she had been shown important things while in Salamanca. But the scene was gone, and she could say no more. She was ready to say something about it. She could get Salamanca, New York out, and then she couldn't say any more. Later that day, O.A. Olson asked her if she would attend the minister's meeting in the morning. She said that she would leave the burden to him. She had no plans to attend the meeting the next morning. March 7, Saturday night, uh, Sabbath and Saturday night, and he wanted to know she was coming to the early morning, morning morning meeting, which was a common place for Ellen White to come and share messages that God had given to her at these sessions, General Conference session and ministerial institutes. Now, by the way, the General Conference met in those days every year, okay, and it met for quite a while. Now, we have gone to every five years. You can imagine 20 million people having a meeting like this every year, that could get really expensive, and it can be really challenging, so we try to continue the work and do continue the work, but do it with that separation. So, Sabbath evening, March 7, Ellen White had retired for the night. But a special closed-door meeting was convened that night, and only some people were invited to that meeting. There were 30 or 40 people that uh, came and met in the Review and Herald's office. The subject was the content of the American Sentinel magazine. A.T. Jones was there, but there were some people who were not there, including the president of the General Conference, O.A. Olson, who was O.A. Slow down, O.A. Olson, who was not invited. 
The committee insisted on changes of content to which A.T. Jones objected and refused to put into place. Someone locked the door. Somewhere during that time, A.F. Ballinger held up a copy of the Sentinel, the most recent Sentinel, said certain articles needed to be removed. This was a Seventh-day Adventist preacher, got up and said that those articles needed to be removed. The meeting dragged on for hours, and at nearly 3 a.m., you can imagine how, what kind of, you think your board meeting's ending at 11 o'clock or a prayer all right? At 3 o'clock in the morning, a vote was taken making significant changes, including changes that A.T. Jones was not comfortable with. After the vote was taken, the door was unlocked and all went home to sleep until 5.30 in the morning when the minister's meeting would convene. So imagine that short amount of sleep. As soon as the meeting closed, an angel awoke Ellen White. The angel told her it was time to share what she had been shown in Salamanca. She got up. She wrote for a couple of hours, and when W.C. White got up and was headed to the meeting, he saw that her light was on. That alarmed him because Ma, he said, I mean, he understood his mother said she wasn't going to the meeting in the morning. So he checked in on her and found out that indeed she indicated she was going to the meeting. At the meeting, Ellen White came in, O.A. Olson was surprised to see her, and he said, have you a message? He assumed there was a reason she was there, which was a good assumption when you were dealing with the prophet of the Lord. Have you a message for us? She said, indeed, I have. She spoke of a meeting she had observed in vision, and then she was able to recount this vision she had seen back in November. She recounted in detail what she had seen. The morning meeting continued until forenoon. So we're, this meeting starts at 5.30. It normally would have ended at 6.30 in the morning. They were still going approaching noon because of what she was sharing, and she had plenty to share to start with. When she got done with what she had to share, O.A. Olson sat there absolutely stunned. He had no idea what was going on in, a, in that meeting. He not only didn't know what was going on in the meeting, he didn't know there was a meeting. When Ellen White got done, there was silence. Now you can just imagine when you understand what was going on, and some of you already know what was going on in that vision and what she shared, when you can imagine what these people heard, you can understand why there was silence. So she repeated the meeting? She recounted the vision that she had had from back then. I'm coming to that. Just don't steal my punchline. <laughs> so a, while they're sitting there and everything's quiet, Suddenly you hear the sound of weeping. And A.F. Ballinger stands up in, in a broken voice 
he reveals that everything that she said was true and that it all happened the night before. She had seen every detail of that meeting. She had seen the people standing up. She had seen Ballinger standing up with the copy of the Sentinel. And when he stood up and said that it, that had all taken place the night before, Ellen White's response was, last night? The meeting was last night? And suddenly she was able to understand why back in November she had been unable since that time to be able to recount that vision. Because if she had recounted it early, nobody would have believed her. It hadn't even happened yet. But now when she stood up and noticed it was just like it was in the Bible. Remember, the, um, the soldiers had come to the tomb of Jesus and they had put a seal on the door, right? Why did they put a seal on the door? To make sure that nobody came and steal, stole the body of Jesus. Hallelujah! It was proof that Jesus was raised because they had the strongest army in the world guarding that, that empty tomb, once it was empty, and the same thing happened in this situation, that God caused them, I believe, to lock that door so that nobody could ever say that somehow Ellen White had snuck into that meeting. She not only wasn't there, she had seen it back in March. And because of the fact that she was able to write it out in her diary, those notes existed from back in November, so they couldn't say that she made that all up later. So all of that helped to put this together. And as a result, there were many confessing their wrong in that meeting. This incident proved to beyond a shadow of a doubt that the inspiration of Ellen White was true and that she was led by God. A month after the 1891 General Conference session, the review reprinted a sermon of Ellen G. White from 1887, and following are some monumental words from that sermon. Notice, this is 1887, not 1891. And this is what she said. The latter rain is to fall upon the people of God. A mighty angel is to come down from heaven, and the whole earth is to be lighted with his glory. Are we ready to take part in the glorious work of the third angel? Are our vessels ready to receive the heavenly dew? Have we defilement and sin in the heart? If so, let us cleanse the soul temple and prepare for the showers of the latter rain. The refreshing from the presence of the Lord will never come to hearts filled with impurity. May God help us to die to self that Christ, the hope of glory, may be formed within. I wanted you to have a little bit of that context going from the past up to 1888 and now I would like to go past 1888 to 1893. So I'll begin to make some sense and again so there's a pieces along the way picking up the most significant pieces in order for us to identify the most important pieces of information that we want. 
Where we're headed is to seek to understand the message of righteousness by faith. But we need to first understand just how critical this message is to the Seventh-day Adventist Church and to the Seventh-day Adventist Church at this time today in the Earth's history. So we're going to look at the Ministerial Institute and the General Conference Session of 1893. And this is going to take us a little bit of work. I'm going to have to keep an eye on that clock because it's going to get away from me very, very quickly. But I hope that the details here will come together, and I hope to get done even a little early so that I can slow down a little bit. I hope to be able to do that. The Ministerial Institute was that pre-session that took place before the General Conference, and sometimes those sessions lasted for many weeks. These pastors were, in, in a lot of cases, coming from all over the world and certainly all over the United States. And they didn't jump on a plane and hop over to Battle Creek. They had to get on a ship and then on a train and then on a, on a uh, um, buggy or whatever, a horse, and get to the place they were going. It took them, in some cases, days, maybe even a week or two, to get from one destination to where they were supposed to be. The Ministerial Institute convened on January 27 of 1893. So it was going to go on for a good three weeks. When we do this, we get together for a few days and uh, maybe a week at the most. O.A. Olson, considering this session, looking forward to it, considered it to be a very important meeting. And he even said probably the most important ever held by our people. Of course, this is 1893. That's pretty good coming off of 1888. He, said, he asked people to especially pray for the upcoming conference. He anticipated that there were some important things that were going to be addressed in this session. Where was Ellen White? She was in Australia. Now, without getting sidetracked too far, the real question is, why was she in Australia? She was in Australia because she had been exiled there. The people were having, the leaders were having a hard time rectifying everything that was going on. And she clearly states, it's, yeah, and her words are recounted in, in, uh, in Duffield's book, and uh, makes it very clear the Lord was not in her going to Australia. But I want you to notice that Ellen White, even with the Lord's direction, submitted to the leadership and to their request for her to go to Australia. It didn't mean that God couldn't override their mistaken desires to do what she did, but that's where she was when this ministerial institute took place. And sometimes that actually proves to be an advantage because what Ellen White was able to do, she was able to take all her messages she wanted to be shared and she wrote them down. And I don't know if she had a whole old buggy full of letters that arrived, but I know that there were a lot of letters that showed up and that were read at the Ministerial Institute and others that had even arrived during the Institute and during the General Conference session that followed. Uriah Smith was not present. He had resigned just before the Institute. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, Uriah Smith and we'll come back to the question that was raised yesterday because it's an important one in relationship to this. But he was not there. He had resigned. He's getting to be an older man by this particular point, and those are some of the issues that were going on. His lectures that he had been assigned were reassigned to S.N. Haskell. There were others, A.T. Jones and Prescott, who were also to be speakers there. 
co-op uh, opening weekend, the speaker was W.W. W. Prescott, and he started by reading one of Ellen G. White's testimonies that had recently been received. In it was counsel to use money for missions and not for a new pipe organ for the Battle Creek Tabernacle. Anybody here from Battle Creek? Yeah, it's an interesting kind of scenario, you know. You, when, you're, when you live in Battle Creek and you're connected with that, you've got to put all that together. And she says, they don't need a new pipe organ, but we need to expand the work in the, in the world and going on. She's in Australia, and she says, we don't have churches down here. We need church buildings down here. While you're wanting to have this nice-sounding organ for your entertainment, my words now, that's my words, understand, but uh, pretty close to that. Um, she said, we need the money down here. And she talked about sacrifice and so on and so forth. So that was a little bit in that testimony. Of course, this was in Battle Creek, okay? So she's having this conversation through the letter. And then she said, the message of Christ's righteousness is to sound from one end of the world to the other. This is the glory of God, which closes the work of the third angel. I want you to listen closely to this language. Because the language has become progressive. The further we go on from 1888, the louder we hear these kinds of expressions. Listen to them because they're important for us to understand. Prescott was doing a series titled The Promise of the Holy Spirit. Toward the end of his first lecture, he quoted Ellen White again, and from, uh, from a uh, letter or an article in the review of November 22, 1892, where she confirmed the beginning of the loud cry and the time for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the latter rain. So catch those connections here. Now you all understand, I'm here, I'm quoting um, Duffield and that situation, and you can see some of the excerpts in your notes. I put the fuller information in there. By, I put, by the way, I put the whole Salamanca vision information in there so you can read that. There's a lot in there, and, uh, and I did that so you would have it. He then said, The loud cry and the latter rain go together. As the time has come for the loud cry, it has also come for the latter rain. But now a work that will be greater than Pentecost has begun. And there are those here who will see it. It is here. It is now. We are to be fitted for the work. 1893. It's not only Ellen White who's placing this kind of emphasis on what's taking place, but you're getting people, the leaders like Prescott, the speakers, beginning to use this language and speaking it very clearly. He introduces a new element then about this point, we're going to spend a few moments with this element because it becomes an all-consuming theme for the remainder of the Institute and for the General Conference session in 1893. The reason we're looking at this is because this is significant progression from 1888 to where we are. Remember, as we pointed out yesterday, there is still opposition going on, Correct. There are still undercurrents going on. There are still these challenges taking place. But the theme that was carried by all the speakers that was introduced here by Prescott in his session is the Laodicean message. It becomes hugely significant. On page 80 of 
um, that book. <laughs> My brain just froze up on it. Anyway, press. Yeah, exactly. That one. Prescott, now at the very end of the time, uh, of time, he said, now we are at the very end of time, and during the special outpouring of the Spirit, or the sealing time, we want to know what hinders its taking place immediately. I say that the presence of sin and the practice of iniquity is what hinders it. 1893. 2018, 1893-2018. So we're going to back up for a moment. We're going to pick up a little of the history of the Seventh-day Adventist Church in relationship to the Laodicean message. Now I'm going to zip right through this a little bit, if I can and bring you up to speed on what the Laodicean message has meant to the Seventh-day Adventist Church going back all the way to the time of the Millerites and that whole experience. I'm going to go through this and uh, just give you that context because the context will help you to understand what's happening here in 1893. Early years after 1844, the Adventists supplied the Laodicean message to the nominal Sunday-keeping Adventists, not to themselves. They figured that they weren't the Laodiceans, they were the Philadelphians, okay? But beginning in 1852, the message of the Laodiceans began to apply to the message, uh, be, began to apply the message to the Sabbath-keeping Adventists. In July of 1856, James White applied it to Sabbath-keeping Adventists in the review July 3, 1856. In November of 1857, the Laodicean message would uh, bring the shaking. Um, it was spoken of in that light. It was said that the Laodicean message would bring the shaking. In uh, Wounded in the House of His Friends, um, Duffield says, the reaction to James White articles and Ellen White's testimonies that came in November of 1857 were life-changing, significantly changing the lives of people. But we're still only in 1856 and 1857. In 1859, what began to happen in relationship to the Laodicean message is that it uh, was not accomplishing zealous repentance because of the hardness of the hearts, Ellen White said. It would not accomplish its work in a few short months. Remember, I mentioned this earlier, that People often say when the latter rain comes, it's going to, you know, instantly we're going to see this here and the Lord's going to come almost instantly. But she specifically said it was designed to rouse the people and to discover their backslidings and lead them to repentance. That takes time, she was implying, that they may be favored with the presence of Jesus and fitted for the loud cry of the third angel the work that needs to be done in order for the loud cry of the third angel to be able to go forward is the work of the Laodicean message. And you look at the Laodicean message, and that's not an easy message. And you're not sure you hear a lot of the Laodicean message being preached today in 2018. Those who come up to every point, she said, and stand every test and overcome to be 
be the price what it may, have heeded the counsel of the true witness, and they will receive the latter rain and thus be fitted for translation. Wow, that's quite the language, isn't it? But what's going to accomplish that? It is the counsel of the true witness. Where is the true witness found? That's found in the message of Revelation chapter 3. Please take your Bibles and let's look over there just to be reminded. Hey, you're a good Seventh-day Adventist. You've read this before. You know what's there. But hey, we're here to study the Bible, right? So let's be reminded of what this message is and of the true witness that is found there. And so we go to Revelation 14. Oh, boy. I'm looking at verse 14. Chapter 3, verse 14, it says, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen. Who's that? Christ, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works and that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I'm rich, have not become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you. So first of all, it's the problem. And then it's the remedy. Verse 18, to counsel you to buy from me gold tried in the fire, refined in the fire, that you may be rich and white garments, that you may be clothed. The shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. This message slowly is working its way through the early Adventist church into the Seventh-day Adventist church. And now it's 1893, but I'm ahead of myself to where we need to be. She said in volume one of the testimonies, I saw that this message would not accomplish its work in a few short months. It is designed to arouse the people of God, to discover to them their backslidings and to lead to zealous repentance, that they may be favored with the presence of Jesus and be fitted for the loud cry of the third angel. Don't you want to be fitted for the uh, presence of Jesus? Be favored, I'm sorry, with the presence of Jesus and fitted for the loud cry. Don't you? How many of you want that today? All right, then we've got to pay attention to this message. It's there for us. As this message affected the heart, it led to deep humility before God. Angels were sent in every direction to prepare unbelieving hearts for the truth. The cause of God began to rise and His people were acquainted with their position. If the counsel of the true witness had been fully heeded, God would have wrought for his people in greater power. Yet the efforts made since the message has been given have been blessed of God, and many souls have been brought from error and darkness to rejoice in the truth. Moving ahead to 1873, Ellen White pointed out that the message had not accomplished its purpose. Notice the separation of years. In 1875, she said that Battle Creek had Laodicean problems. The message directed to the angel of the church is pointed out in, uh, in Duffield's book as the leadership of the church. Interesting connection. 
I'd like to talk about that more. 1882 to 1886, the things that we see in the writings of Ellen White and the others are that there's unbelief in the testimonies, Pharisaism is coming in, there's a false defense of the law, all of this in 1882 to 1886. What? 1882 to 1886, you get the connection of these dates? Duffield does a masterful job of keeping these dates together. When I began to see the, the progression of these dates, all through this whole thing, not just the Laodicean message, I started writing the dates in the, in the column of the book because those dates become significant as you see the progression of what God was doing in His church. There are people today that have gotten real confused about some things that the Seventh-day Adventist Church believe because people keep trying to take us back to the pioneers when the pioneers were progressive in their understanding of truth. And that was what was happening here. We need to keep that in mind. A whole other area to go to. And then they're also being spoken of that a time of trials is before us, 1886, as a result of the Pharisaism that was coming into the church. In 1888, Ellen White said that Pharisaism was leavening the work at Battle Creek. Backing up just a little bit, I just kept that connection there. In 1883 and 1884, we were told that if the message had done its work, Christ would have come for the redemption of His people. Duffield puts it this way, he says, but the fact that the Lord was ready to finish up the work before 1888 did not negate the need for the message he sent through Jones and Wagner at the Minneapolis conference. Their message was the culminating message to the Laodiceans, the beginning of the latter rain and loud cry message. God would have sent the message earlier if he'd had willing messengers. The point is that the message that is to lighten the whole earth with its glory is the same message for all time. As you will see here in just a few moments, we'll come to Olson, and Olson helps us to understand what that means about that message being the same message for all time. I'd like you to take your material, I think I've got it in there, and see if we can find it, and I've got to find my material. So go to page, uh, 89, page 12 and uh, look there where it... Uh, says uh, page 89, and I'm going to go to my copy here because I want this is a good chance for me to point out some things to you. There's a footnote that he has in there, and what I have is what was said earlier on page 89, but not the comments. Here's what he said. Commenting on Ellen White's 1883 statement, Jordan Knight seeks to draw the following conclusions. In 1883, Ellen White claimed that Jesus would have come soon after 1844, an idea that has astounding consequences for those who would make too much of Jones, Wagner, or Prescott's theology in 1888, 1893, or 1895. The implication is clear that Christ could have returned before 1888. That is, before Jones and Wagner ever preached their interpretation of the gospel. For that reason, it is not helpful to build too much on the basis of their distinctive theology. It is neither their message nor the particular interpretation that they placed upon the gospel that is important, but the gospel itself. I want to be real careful because I really don't want to get down too far down this track, but that's the reason why the footnotes in his books are so vital. 
is because as you begin to compare what some historians have said about our history, and then you compare it to history itself, you'll find that there are some real challenges with that. And this is Duffield's comment to that. He says, but the gospel itself was interpreted differently by Uriah Smith, G.I. Butler, and many others during the 1888 era. And it is misinterpreted by evangelical and Catholic Christianity today. Only that gospel which contains the divine remedies of the true witness will suffice. The very message that God gave to Jones and Wagner, which Ellen White supported, does matter. God is waiting for the same gospel message to be proclaimed today. That's part of the challenge that you and I are facing today. And again, I don't want to go down a track where I told you yesterday, one of the things we have to be careful of, so we're not trying to beat up somebody in the past. We're not trying to beat up anybody in the present. We're trying to find the truth. And the only way that we seem to be able to get to the truth right now is because we seem to have been able to create our own history. And we're having to literally go back to the history to be able to see if our understanding of the history is historically correct. And I think that's our responsibility because we're still here. If the message was doing its work, why are we still here? Continuing on, in 1888, now we're to 1888, but we're not to 1893 yet. Ellen White said Pharisaism was leavening the work of Battle Creek. She also said that the Lord in His great mercy sent a most precious message. Remember that statement? Ellen White defined the message of justification by faith as the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust. And doing for man that which is not in his power to do for himself. When men see their own nothingness, they are prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. That was what was going on. She was speaking to the issues of the time. What Butler and Smith were saying was in contradistinction to this message. Where are, where, where are work supposed to be, they were saying. They were getting the idea that what Jones and Wagner and White were saying was that we don't need any works and there's nothing here. They had missed the whole point of what was being said. You and I must leave here having some understanding of what's being said, and that's what I intend to do in the next couple of days. Let me back up here for a moment. 1889, Ellen White continued to draw attention to the Laodicean message. In 1890, she said, Since the time of the Minneapolis meeting, I have seen the state of the Laodicean church as never before. I have heard the rebuke of God spoken to those who feel so well satisfied who know not their spiritual destitution. Isn't it interesting that some people are trying to say that, oh, everything was fine and just, you know, what happened in 1888 had no significance. But here's Ellen White saying, I'm seeing and understanding things like I never really understood it before. God could have worked, yes, if people had been following the message, but they didn't follow the message. That's why. They didn't heed the Laodicean message. Could Christ have come? Yes, if they'd heeded the message. But they didn't heed the message. That's why the messengers had to come to give the message clear enough for people to understand it and to be willing to accept it. But instead of that, we had an ongoing battle going on between those who were trying to share the message, those who saw the light and accepted the message, and those who continued to resist that message. 
Duffield said, now the call of the true witness took on a broader meaning um, than it had ever had before. Ellen White said the state of the church, she equivalent, uh, the state of the church was spoken of in the parable of the foolish virgins, and she said that the state of the, pa- of the foolish virgins is the same thing as the Laodicean state. This is the ongoing process that was being generated here and understanding the Laodicean message. Those who realize their need of repentance, she said, will repent for their resistance of the Spirit of the Lord. They will confess their sin in refusing the fight, the light, I'm sorry, that heaven has so graciously sent them. That was in 1892. You understand the significance of that kind of language? And we're now, 1892, moving past 1888. September 1 of 1892, Olson received a letter from Ellen White. You can see it on page 95 of the book and also in the notes on page 13. So your notes here, see I even wrote that down this time. Page 13 of your notes, you can see that letter and what it is. It says the letter to O.A. Olson. Now, we're not going to read that whole letter because I don't have time to do that, but I'm going to hit some of the highlights up on the screen. Ellen White said to O.A. Olson, and every one of these souls will be tested again on the points, points where they failed then. The time will come when many will be willing to do anything and everything possible in order to have a chance, hearing the call which they rejected at Minneapolis. Did you catch that? Remember the Bible passage that says the time will come when they will be hungry for the Word of God? She says the time will come when people are going to want to be able to hear that message again. People today are saying, oh, that we had the exact message that was then, like, well, well, we can't get it, so we'll never know. Oh, Lord, help us if that's the case. Because of that message, and I don't, I'm not mean sacrilegious with that. May the Lord help us to understand what it is He was trying to communicate because what He was trying to tell us is a matter of eternal life and eternal death and not being prepared for the return of Jesus Christ. God moved upon hearts, but many yielded to another spirit which was moving upon their passions from beneath. Oh, that these poor souls, sorry about that, would make thorough work before it is everlastingly too late. Better opportunities will never come. Deeper feelings they will not have. Prescott felt that his only message in this session, this ministerial session, was to lead people to confess our sinfulness to God. The Spirit of God was moving. Prescott had at first resisted the message, but... Since he, back in, I can't remember what year, we talked about it yesterday, he had accepted that message and he had been moving ahead with it. And as he preached, he encouraged the people. There, a lot of that's in the book and I just have to keep moving to keep everything flowing. A.T. Jones tied world events to setting up of this image and the connected word that the loud cry of the... A third angel had begun to sound. He connected what was going on because remember, Jones is the one who's fighting the battle against Blair in Congress and against the movements that are seeking to bring in Sunday laws and all of those kinds of things. All of these are taking place at the same time that the message is coming to light. 
And he connected the two of those events with what was coming from the word of God and with the loud cry in the third angel and said that they had begun to sound because Alan White was using that language and saying that here at this time. S.N. Haskell said, we are living in the most solemn time that has ever been since Adam fell. There must be a change in our hearts or we shall never enter the heavenly kingdom. He continued on a later presentation, Sunday, uh, February 5, 1893. He said, this is the outpouring of the Spirit of God. It is the loud cry of the third angel's message. The first step is having the heart cleansed from sin. When the heart is cleansed by the blood of Christ, we will go right on in accomplishing the work that God has for us to do. But that's the message that he said was necessary in that time in 1893. If he was saying it was necessary in 1893, is it necessary in 2018? Yes. A.T. Jones and R.C. Porter continued the same theme. Jones tied the latter rain together with the teaching of righteousness by faith, which is the loud cry, he said. There were repeated calls for repentance and to stand for the message that God was sending, people being willing, they said, to take their stand on in support of the messages that were being given since 1888, centering on the righteousness of Christ. O.A. Elson, president, February 8th of 1893. Now remember, January, end of January, this ministerial session began. It's now February 8th of 1893. These sessions focusing in on the Laodicean message and they are powerful messages. I obviously have skipped over all of it, and you can understand why I've had to. But O.A. Olson made some of these comments at his presentation on February 8. He said, this place is becoming more and more solemn on account of the presence of God. He was especially referring to a presentation that A.T. Jones had made just before this. And he felt the solemn presence of God through that message. He said, some may feel tried, not tired. I didn't typo that one. <laughs> may feel tried over the idea that Minneapolis is referred to. People were still complaining is, how much more are we going to hear about this Minneapolis thing? Boy, does that sound like 2018? He continued on and he said, God knew all about this meeting before we did. God is in this work and he himself is leading out. Praise the Lord. O.A. Olson had his moments and his challenging times in relationship to managing this. Read some of the letters of what he got from Ellen White and you wouldn't have wanted to be the general conference president during that time getting some of the letters that he got. But this is what he said. This is what I referred to earlier. But if we fail at one time, the Lord will take us over the ground again. And if we fail a second time, He will take us over the ground again. And if we fail a third time, the Lord will take us over the same ground again. You get the message? He was being prophetic, if I can dare to put it that way. The Lord's going to take us over this ground, folks, until we get it. He can't do anymore because that is the message that prepares a people. If Jesus were to come now, you and I would all be in trouble. Are you hearing me? Yeah. I'm telling you that because God needs to have a people prepared for that final time. If all the events that were supposed to happen and that will happen at the end of time would happen, 
I want you to know you do not have to leave here without the assurance of Jesus' love. If you die tonight, you've given your heart to Jesus, and when Jesus comes, you'll be with Him. Hallelujah. But the Lord is preparing a people that are going to be translated. And those people that are going to be translated are going to have to have a preparation that only Jesus can do for us. We cannot do it for ourselves. It cannot be done. And that was what the message was all about, what the Lord was trying to bring to His people. And He's going to wait until we get it. Why? Because He's merciful to us. He's not going to come before we're ready. He's not going to do this work before we're ready. But how much longer do we want to wait? We want to go over and over and over and over the ground? No. Olson said, why? It is that we may lay hold of His grace and overcome. Amen. This is leading into what we need to talk about in the next couple of days. Olson continued on and he said, as a denomination... We have theoretically believed in the doctrine of justification by faith. I'd like to say in 2018, we as a dominant denomination have theoretically believed in the doctrine of justification by faith. And those who were connected with the early experience of the message knew a great deal of its power. But it is a fact that we were resting more and more on the theory and less and less on the power of the truth. You can have the theory in your heart but have no experience and it means nothing. But with reference to leading sinners to Christ and preaching a death to sin and a living connection with heaven, they could not do it because they had not the experience themselves. Justification by faith is not a theory but an experience, said Olson. A.T. Jones on Monday evening, February 13, continued his lecture on the divine remedies of the true witness. His topic was the white raiment. You know where that's coming from now because we just reviewed Revelation chapter 3. Now I would like you to do something with me. Let's have a little fun. Let's pretend that A.T. Jones is preaching. I better sit down. <laughs> All right that A.T. Jones is preaching, and we are at that ministerial session, and we are there. They were not just ministers there. There were people from the community there. It was not restricted. There were hundreds of people in these meetings. And so we're going to have a little fun here, because they were not like a lot of our congregations today. When the preacher says something, once in a while you hear, Amen. A lot of time you hear, Nothing. <laughs> but in, our, in, uh, in that day, they were speaking back to the preacher, and if the, they weren't speaking back to the preacher, the preacher wasn't able to even preach at all. So let's have a little fun with this and also get the theology that was going on at that particular time. Listen carefully. So here's what the, what the record says. A.T. Jones is preaching. When it says congregation, don't say congregation. That's your clue. Say righteousness, all right? So I'm going to be Jones here, and I'm going to preach it, and you're going to be the congregation. Everybody with me? Amen. All right, here we go. What is that, Raymond? Righteousness. Whose righteousness? Christ. Whose is that? The righteousness of God. Whose are we to seek? The righteousness of God. What is righteousness? Right doing. 
Can you imagine what that must have been like in Battle Creek? All right, you're having so much fun, let's keep going. What is the margin? He hath given you the former rain. What is that? Now, by the way, the margin is, what does it say in the margin of the Bible? Okay, and that was what he was referring to, because they often would quote from the margin of the Bible for clarification of a Bible passage, okay? He hath given you, he's quoting now the Bible, he says, he hath given you the former rain. What is that? A teacher of righteousness. Given you the former rain moderately. What is that? Moderately? What was the former rain at Pentecost? A teacher of righteousness. He hath given you a teacher of righteousness according to righteousness. Was that the former rain? And he will give you the former rain, uh, the rain, I'm sorry, the former rain and the latter rain as at first. What will be the latter rain? A teacher of righteousness. Again, according to what? Righteousness. But what is another expression for the latter rain? The outpouring of the Spirit. What is another one? The time of refreshing. What is the latter rain to the third angel's message? What is the latter rain in connection with the fall of Babylon? It is the bestowal of that power and that glory which, with which the angel of Revelation comes down and lightens the earth. Can you imagine the theology that was in all of that? There is so much there that you and I need to talk about. We will. Ministerial Institute of 1893, you realize that I have nine minutes to deal with everything here. And here's the good news. I only have four slides left. The response to that institute is that Haskell wrote to Ellen White, who is where? In Australia. For a certainty, God is pouring out his spirit, he said. G.C. Tenney, who was from New Zealand, which is Ellen White's territory, and he was there as a minister in that section. See, I told you they came from a long way. He said that reckoned among the, this meeting reckoned among the most important and in many respects is entitled to first place. Interesting. Covert made this comment. The solemnity that has rested upon those in attendance at the Institute has been very marked. Duffield refers to it this way. Yet amidst all the positive talk of the Ministerial Institute and the General Conference to come, there was still a sense that not a few remained at odds with the message of the meetings. God is working, but Satan is working too. Uriah Smith wrote a review in the, uh, in the review, a response. Note that response. 1890, what year? It was full of facts, but lacked the feeling of personal benefit. He did not attempt to even give a synopsis of the matter which has been brought out. He failed to even mention, sorry about the typo, A.T. Jones at all. We're talking, look how long it took me for me to go through the details that 1893 session and all that was going on and the responses that were taking place and what O.A. Olson said and Uriah Smith, oh, basically he said, ah, oh, they had a meeting. As in Haskell, such examples of apparent continued prejudice are ample reasons that S.N. Haskell would inform Ellen White that he had great hopes that Brother Smith would get free, but somehow he did not, as far as I know. What's the year? 
The general conference session began right after this session on Friday, February 17, 1893. Presentations and devotional meetings given each morning with two evening Bible study sessions as well, presented mostly by Prescott and Jones, continued on the same theme of the Laodicean message. Now, there's a little side note that I need to bring in here because it does come up as people are reviewing the history and all. I do not have time to get sidetracked into it. I want you to be aware of it, but not sidetracked by it. Get a hold of Duffield's book and he'll explain what was going on. But there was a book out in those days, Hannah Whitehall Smith wrote, it was talking about living the Christian life. But she was not a Seventh-day Adventist. And Jones made reference to that book, and some people like to say that, well, he was just going to that book and he was supporting what she had to say. You read what he said, and you understand that it was tongue-in-cheek what he was saying. He wasn't supporting what, he, what she said. He was pointing out that I didn't need her to tell me that because it's there in the Word of God, and I'm not even sure that what she's saying is on track. My translation of that. You can read it there for yourself. You can find it on page 138 and 139 of uh, wounded in the house of his friends. Messages that were brought, brought heartfelt confessions, even in the general conference session. I.D. Van Horn was present there. We spoke of him earlier, yesterday. He confessed a great wrong that all the way from that time until the 1893 conference. Even though he had had a conversion experience or some what of experience. The messages that were being shared by A.T. Jones and Prescott brought about a lot of confessions, including I.D. Van Horn's. He confessed the great wrong that he had done before, and then three days later got a letter from where? From Australia, from Ellen White. It cut even deeper, so deep that he had to confess it. He, he got down on his knees when he was reading that letter. Bless him for doing that. And he confessed it all to the Lord. The next morning at the, the uh, session, he got up and made an earnest and extended confession. God got a hold of his heart, and he was one of those individuals who confessed that he had been on the wrong side of this issue. Look at this. It's 1893. It's five years since 1888, and there are still these individuals, preachers and lay people alone, who are struggling, getting on the right side of this, resisting what is happening here. And the messages of the righteousness of Christ are breaking hearts and changing lives. 1893 was indeed a significant year. February 23, Prescott, he is preaching a lesson on the Holy Spirit. He says, now it is no use whatever for us to pray and pray for the outpouring of the Spirit apart from the righteousness and character of Christ. Jones said, Sister White says that we have been in the time of the latter rain since the Minneapolis meeting. Do you catch the significance of this? In 1897, Ellen White would admonish the church, let us with contrite hearts pray most earnestly that now in the time of the latter rain, the showers of grace may fall upon us. Two years later, she would remind the brethren that years ago the time came for the Holy Spirit to descend in a special manner upon Christ's earnest, self-sacrificing workers. Certainly then, at the 1893 General Conference, they were living in the time of the latter rain, as Ellen White had stated and as G.B. Starr had reported. The question as to whether they would truly heed the counsel of the true witness and repent that the showers might be poured out upon them. Some had done so and received great blessings. But what 
of the church in general. Marvelous and amazing is the progression of what was happening from 1888 to 1893. I'd really hoped, and I don't have it in my slides because I knew I'd get about this point and be done. And that is that what happened after this, there were great things happening, but the devil was on the warpath. What did the devil begin to do to begin to sidetrack what was taking place? We must look at that because it has tremendous ramifications for us. Tomorrow we will look at that. Didn't quite get to it today. And on top of that, we'll move into our next section where we must now begin to look at the message of righteousness by faith, that we might be able to understand it. We might be able to see as much about that message as we can. I will conclude with this. When we met in January, the ministers in January, at Camp Asable, we uh, had a session there together, and we invited a, um, one of the uh, ministers, a scholar from the Biblical Research Institute of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. His name is Clinton Walleen. Now, Clinton is quoted a number of times in Duffield's material because he had written a, a master's dissertation on, uh, on, a lot of, on some of these things. And so, because of that, he's pulled in those pieces. We asked Dr. Walleen to come and to share with us. And one of the things that Elder Mitchell asked him to do is, please tell us what the message of righteousness by faith is. And when he asked him to do that, when Elder Mitchell asked him to do that, Dr. Walleen was quiet on the other end. And Elder Mitchell said, basically, why are you quiet? And basically he was quiet because when it comes to trying to define that is when we start getting into challenges. Because everybody wants to define it and wants to put something in it. And this is the point where you and I have to pray like we've never prayed before. I believe the message is very clear, but I believe we've also made it very complicated. I believe it's very simple, that God made it very simple but that we have managed to twist it and turn it and try to take it down all kinds of different ways instead of where the Bible takes it and the spirit of prophecy clearly places it. And it doesn't have to be that complicated. We do need to try to identify and to identify what some of those basics are. We will attempt to do that, but you and I must pray that we can see it clearly and that this humble vessel here can say what needs to be said appropriately and not say what doesn't need to be said. And so I hope that you will pray for me tonight and pray for us tomorrow as we continue our journey because now we're going from history to trying to understand what that now means for us. We'll pick up a little of history that we didn't get to today and then we'll start to move in in the last two days and understanding what this message is and what it does mean for us in 2018 130 years after the message was first given. Let's pray. Father in heaven, so much to learn, so much to know. But how grateful we are that you have given us this message and that we can know it if we are willing to study it. 
Thank you for the way you've led your church. Yes, Lord, we've made mistakes, and for that we want to ask your forgiveness. And ask that you will send the Holy Spirit upon us again, that you will return the latter rain to us as you started the latter rain, and now you want to go back and finish that work. As Elder Olson said, we'll keep going over that ground until we get it right. Oh, Lord, help us again to get it right. As we leave here tonight, today, please go with us. Thank you for hearing our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.